This is the On Conflict Podcast, deep conversations that will transform your relationship with conflict. Season two, a focus on leadership. And now your hosts, Julia Menard and Gordon White. Hello, my name is Julia Menard. I'm Gordon White. This is the On Conflict Podcast. Today, we're very honored to have Elton Samoys. Elton practices arbitration, mediation, med-arb in quite complex commercial disputes that involve a whole range of interesting characters, including shareholders, issues that impact intellectual property, technology, entertainment, and sports. Elton has lived, worked, and studied in Canada, the United States, Latin America, Europe, where he has held senior positions in leadership, such as Vice President of Disney at TV International, Managing Director Sports at Globosat Brazil, CEO and Chair of the Board of Playboy Brazil. He currently serves as President and Chair of the Board of Directors at the ADRBC organization here in British Columbia. That's the Alternative Dispute Resolution Association of British Columbia. He, and he is also Vice President and President-elect at the ADR Institute of Canada. On the education side, Elton completed degrees in business and law concurrently from two different universities in Brazil. He has a master's degree in dispute resolution from the University of Victoria and is currently a PhD candidate at Royal Roads University in British Columbia. Welcome, Elton. Oh, thank you, Gordon. Yeah, thank you, Julie. It's always a pleasure being here. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> is there any, anything more you'd like to say about yourself as we're getting going? No, I think you've got it covered. That's okay. I also don't think your, your listeners will be that much interested. <laughs> well, we hope they will be. <laughs> We're trying to impress them with your bio, Elton. That's the point. <laughs> well, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons we're happy to have you here, that modesty is allowing us to have this opportunity with you because, um, you know, part of what I wanted to say just in terms of bridging your bio and the interview with you is that, you know, you've come to the field a little later in your career to the alternative dispute resolution, the conflict field, to be one of us. Earlier in your career, you've held a lot of senior corporate positions. And, you know, for many reasons, we're quite thrilled to have you on the show because you're not only an ADR practitioner, somebody who is. Uh, operates in our field, is a leader in our field, but you also work beautifully into the theme that we have going in our second season, which is the relationship between leadership and conflict. So we're very excited to have this opportunity with you. Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> so we have some questions, Elton, and one of them is, what kind of leadership is required from uh, both political, organizational, and corporate leaders in this time of COVID-19? I think the, the issue is, is, more, is less what kind of leadership um, is required and more how we exercise leadership. Um, what I mean by that is uh, COVID imposes it in corporations, in our personal lives, and in governments, and everything else that you look around, a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, what uncertainty does is uh, it removes the rules of the game, if you will, right? And whatever we're interested in doing and whatever we did in the past 
it's certainly the likelihood that it's not going to work exactly like it did in the past uh, is very high. Right? Then, uh, my, in my work, I deal a lot with uh, governance, board of directors, and uh, CEO positions, and so on. Then, the, the question is how you're going to exercise, exercise leadership given a very uncertain environment where the tools that you use to rely upon don't work anymore. That imposes the need of you to lead creativity. And for you to be creative, you can't be really married to uh, positions or to ideas in the past. You need to be guided by principles. That's the first bit. The second bit is how you're going to motivate people to help you out, to out, to help you out and to establish a partnership in that moment of crisis. Right? And the only certainty you have is Whatever you did in the past, not going to work. And, that, and the other certainty you have is that you need uh, the wisdom of the crowds. You need people to give their input. And also the people that you lead need uh, to be willing to give their input and to negotiate their way through it. Right? Then I am guessing that what we need is, um, is uh, a leadership that can catalyze all different opinions and create an agenda so that this agenda is, can uh, translate uh, what the group wants. Right? Then it's a huge, you can see crisis as an opportunity to, uh, to authority, but you can see also crisis as an opportunity to co-create and to be more democratic. Right? I am more in favor of this, the second option. There's so much in what you said. I want to go after so much in what you just said as your opening statement, Elton. There's a couple things. One is you're saying in this time of great uncertainty, there's this crisis opportunity point that leadership can go in the area of authoritarianism, my way or the highway kind of thing is what I'm getting. And, And, you know, correct me or clarify that, but... The, the, the meeting point, or it can go in this area of principled leadership, uh, collaborative leadership, co-creative leadership. It, it, first yeah. of all, let me just get that. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So I'm totally fascinated by what this co-creative leadership can look like because you've mentioned principles that would be important, yeah. and I actually heard one or two already in that narrative. I'm curious what principles you see and also how to motivate people. Yeah, the, the principal bit of it is what kind of values are driving that particular organization or that particular decision or that particular leadership, right? Because those values, you need to have certain agreement on the baseline of those values in an organization, right? Or at least on how to handle, or deal with them, right? How to negotiate the things around those values because they're not going to be negotiated. And that's a very important bit. If you strongly disagree and you're incapable of building bridges among the, uh, among the members of that group, then there's no le- no possible leadership. Hmm. Right. Okay. Then the uh, no, what was the second question? That you just well, just before by, we oh sorry, yeah, how are you saying a leader should be guided by principles in this current situation that's different than how they might be guided by principles in a normal situation? Because you're suggesting there's a difference. Yeah. Because the difference is, uh, in a crisis situation, you, you, you can't really hide your thoughts or your, where you stand on things. Because if you do, people can't uh, 
expedite any solution or they can, they can help you to expedite those solutions. Then transparency is an important value. Communication is an important thing to be exercised in these situations. And your own perception of what things are, what, uh, what the variables are, are also necessary and, and needed. In, when things are, say, in a normal state, you will have the benefit of stability. Then need to negotiate and to be less trans to, to have transparency. It's only somehow somewhat less. Once you go to, through uncertainty, mm. uh, your ability to adapt is linked to your ability to perceive, mm -hmm. and your ability to perceive is linked to your ability to understand yourself and understand the others. Mm -hmm. I, I, right. I'm just going to understand what can be negotiated and what cannot. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to reiterate something because um, it was a funny sound for a second too, and just make sure everyone heard. Because I think you're saying that in these times of uncertainty, the transparency is more important, right? You have to be more transparent yes. with your values, right? I think is that yeah, and it's, you, to, you also have to be transparent with information. Mm -hmm. People get confused. Transparency, transparency doesn't mean. Uh, not having control over the information. It just means that people must understand what you mean mm -hmm. and what you want, what your intentions are. Mm -hmm. And that's key because uh, if, you, if you don't have transparency, you add a new, uh, another layer of uncertainty that's completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And with uncertainty comes fear, comes, um, comes irrationality, comes all the things that you don't want in that moment. Mm -hmm. And under normal circumstances, the, the you know, people, groups of people can tolerate that, but now they have to be more careful of it, right? To, to prevent, to reduce no, the, uncertainty. The consequences, yeah, the consequences of errors in crisis is, is, is more serious than the consequences of errors in other situations. Because in crisis, the biggest commodity is time. Mm -hmm. Right? It's your ability to adapt within a, a certain time frame that's going to determine your success. If you take too long to adapt, crisis is going to do your way. Julie, I'm thinking you might have a question. <laughs> I'm loving this conversation. So uh, for me, it's, I'm, I'm just wanting to slow the whole thing down. It's ironic. Elton, we've only asked you one question. And already there's still so, for me, there's so much richness in the answer that I just want to make sure we're capturing this before we even go any further. Because the one thing you two are teasing apart now and articulating is this principle around being really clear with your values, especially in crisis, that there's a big grace period when we're not in crisis. We can get away with a lot more, if you want to say that. Yeah. More, more mistakes, more... Um, maybe lack of finesse and lack of elegance in our communication. Yeah, okay. That's correct. Yeah, okay, so this is really big. And the piece around being transparent about what you want and what you intend versus your values, I mean, that's a whole area which actually, I won't go into right now. I know as three conflict resolvers in this conversation, the three of us could go down that rabbit hole around discerning between those things, but I'm just realizing I'll leave that for chat time somewhere else, but just to highlight that people need to be clear about, leaders need to be clear about what they want, and they need to be holding up what they value, yeah? Yeah, but the, it scares me a little bit when you say about what they want, right? 
because that would that would imply that it, that a leader needs to know the solution, mm-hmm. right? What I say is that a leader must be capable of translating whatever the situation requires into an agenda that's a workable and acceptable agenda that has a certain buy-in within people, within the people that they lead. Mm-hmm. By uh, right? which is it's like, it's very different from knowing exactly what the solution is because it's unlikely that you will do you will or any leader any human being will in these circumstances okay sorry i want to jump there too because um i think what you're saying elton is to be careful using the word want because sometimes people can translate that into my way or the highway or i have a solution versus you're suggesting that a leader needs to be facilitative listening to what their followers if we can call it that what their followers are wanting and create this gestalt or this uh, integrated agenda that their job becomes much more also about which you talked about earlier in our conversation already but much more about listening to what people want and helping to interpret something that's broad enough that people can buy into is that right that's correct yeah Okay, and not just buy into, I think you're also talking about a type of servant leadership in that you're also wanting to serve what is uh, for the greater good. That's correct. I I just want to clarify also the use of the word agenda, because what I'm getting from that is what you're saying is that you articulate a set of principles that you're going to follow. Um, You articulate the principles, and principles are kind of the things that are non-negotiable, right? And you have the collective principles, you have the individual principles, and of course, uh, you uh, people who are around making decisions need to abide by those principles, being itself and and groups. That's the one. That's one bit. That's one bit, right? The other thing is what should be done given a crisis, right? And what should be done given a crisis is uh, subject to negotiation. Right. And that negotiation needs to end up with a certain number of actions and timelines and whatever other currency you need to put there. And in order to achieve that, this list of points and this how to do and what to do, they need to come from a certain agreement amongst those people, which is what I call an agenda. Right. It needs to be translated into certain points that can have responsibility, can have delegation, can have uh, can accommodate timelines, can accommodate expectations, and so on. Can we back up again? I get it that that you've yeah. just given us the trajectory from beginning to end. Just backing up, do you have a sense of what the key principles are that leaders could think about who are caught in this time of crisis and might be struggling right now because their followership is chaotic? Um, or, or just any leader that wants to be more mindful in these times, what principles could be help them make the non-authoritarian choice, the creative leadership choice? Like the, the obvious thing in life is that leader, their diversity will improve decision making, right? But diversity is great until it happens to you. Right? Then it's not so great. It's very hard, right? Because that uh, implies uh, looking at situations from different angles and most most of them you never thought about it then at the very least there's an ego problem there right or they're opposed to what you thought before or they're simply something that's counterintuitive to you right uh, 
then with, just, with, take, yeah. just in the positive side, uh, just in the positive ramifications of diversity, right? You well, need to deal with that. Well, and it promotes, I'm just thinking, it promotes uncertainty because we're going into territory I didn't think of. And so we all, we've been talking about how uncertainty provokes fear and anxiety, right? Yeah. It, 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 I wouldn't say that, that it, it promotes uncertainty. I'd say that it's, the perception of uncertainty is heightened, right? Because it's really, people are really different. It's part of the environment. It never changes. But if you, if you put a lot of time constraint, which is the uh, a trait of crisis, Right? In crisis, you don't, that's why it's a crisis. You don't have a couple of years to figure that out. You have a couple of days, hours, or months, whatever, uh, whatever short uh, time period that is. Um, if you add to it um, a lack of understanding and a bit of uncertainty on what people know, then what you have is you, you, compound, you compound the complexity of the problem. Rather than reducing it, you compound it. So that's another one of the principles you've been mentioning, sorry, is to be transparent yeah. and informative. Yeah. Which are ways for you to uh, explore the benefits of diversity? One of the themes that's come up is the sort of lack of knowledge or the not knowing. And would you, would you comment on this, uh, you know, the ability of leaders to say, I don't know? in some situations <laughs> yeah we are always yeah we are, we've been raised with the idea that we need to know what to do all the time right uh, we are in a society especially in, in north america and western hemisphere we uh, in that values uh, outgoing type a kind of personalities right we undervalue silence Right. If if uh, if we're dialoguing with someone and that person takes a while to answer, we uh, get a bit shaken, and then we want we want to fill that gap of silence, right? But that has nothing to do with leading people, actually. Right? Ultimately, people will follow you if they understand what you're doing. Ultimately, you do have time to. Um, to think and make that decision, and people appreciate, be, uh, appreciate being um, consulted, or they appreciate that you take their, their opinions into consideration. Uh, if you just offer the solution that's in your mind, the solution, uh, uh, what ultimately happens is you are not going to benefit from the wealth of experiences that you have in a boardroom, and you're gonna defeat the purpose of having a diverse team. So much uh, information and different rich perspectives there. Yeah, Julie, I'm wondering if we should go on to the next, the, our next topic area. You think so? Yeah, I was thinking so too. Yeah, that'd be oh. great. Okay, so Elton, um, what are your most significant learnings uh, regarding dealing with conflict as a leader? I like conflict, and not because it helps me professionally. I I always enjoy. I always enjoyed the discussion and I always enjoyed the conflict within the organizations because I always thought it was a way to flush out things that I haven't seen before, right? Uh, then in my career, I just learned to be more constructive about it, right? Then less confrontational. And I, I think that the, uh, what changed in my life with the 
with my career going towards dispute resolution is I learned to be a better uh, a better listener I learned to take more into account what people are feeling I learned to take more into account what you're saying and I learned above all to show that which is uh, a whole different ballgame one thing is for you to listen the other one is for the other people to know you're listening yes can you say some more about how you've learned when you're in a senior leadership position to communicate effectively what you have heard from others? If you take a look at any career in the corporate world, right, you, you're rewarded at the beginning for knowing the answer, for doing things, doing them quickly, and most of the time individually. As you go up in an organization, right, uh, the first thing that you learn is how to organize people. Right, and that's a middle management position. You're organizing people to complete tasks. Then, as you go up, your ability to convince people becomes more important. Because you need to be able to be to go to another country and make sure that and, and be sure that whatever has been agreed upon is being done. If you move up a little bit more than your CEO, then you become a board of directors. And the difference between a CEO is a CEO ultimately is the judge of everything. Ultimately, the CEO, CEO's opinion will prevail. Then, uh, what's going to differentiate is how wisely you use that that prerogative. Prerogative, right? Uh, when you go to a board of directors, you are vote among a sort of dozen of votes. Then you have the ability to convince. Even if you're the chair, you have the ability. To, you have the power to convince. You don't have the power, the power to impose. And in that trajectory, I became increasingly uh, more um, rely reliant on other people's uh, work, opinion, and, and impressions, and decisions, and increasingly less felt the need of control. And what I ended up learning is, um, and I learned many times in the, hard, in the hard way, but I ended up learning, is that if people understand what they're doing and you, if you negotiate the agenda with them, if you negotiate what should be done, and if you know how to select them in and out, then things will get done. No matter, no matter uh, how, the how is, is a more of a personal decision. And it's less important for me today to control the how, it's more important to control the what, the when, but not the how. So the negotiation is mostly over the what and the when and leave, leave yeah. the how up to people who have res those responsibilities. Yeah. You know, everyone who, who exercises its own power and its own delegation the way they see fit, within reason, right? But if you are running an organization, you should be satisfied that the, the uh, goals have been agreed upon and have been achieved. You know, if both things happen, then your organization will ultimately function because your job is just to coordinate to several inputs from different areas. Yeah. Elton, I'm going to ask you to repeat that where you started back at, um, if you run an organization. If you run an organization in a position of leadership, your job is to coordinate the inputs of different areas. And if they are achieving their goals and the objectives that you agreed upon, within the, the time frame that you agreed upon, right, then 
you open and then your coordination work is way facilitated by this. Elton, if you also just reflect all, again on leadership in conflict, are there other qualities of a leader that are helpful in being able to navigate conflicts? This would be both inside an organization, amongst personnel, and then also externally with other large organizations. Yeah. I think it's uh, in a leadership position, you need to, uh, what is important is to have a good relationship with power, to use power in a constructive way. Right? Power is not something that um, suits well for an organization if you use that for exclusively individualistic or exclusive um, personal objectives. And power needs to be exercised wisely so that you actually don't need to exercise that much. Right? Then it's much better to influence and so that things happen naturally than to uh, actually uh, impose. When you need to impose, uh, you fail as a leader. Right? It's not that it's not one of the, toolbox, the tools in the toolbox, it's just a tool that doesn't need to be used frequently. That's imposition. Right. right. The other thing is is your attitude towards conflict. Right. Then, um, while leading leading an organization implies uh, implies or requires that you are not afraid of conflict, um, the way this conflict is framed and whether it's constructive or not is mostly dependent on the way the leader will do it. And uh, if you use a con- if you use conflict as a more constructive uh, tool, then you're going to expedite the way the organization's uh, the way the organization uh, achieves its goals. If you use conflict as just the satisfaction of a personal agenda or something uh, in that line, the end result is that the organization is not going to flourish. I can I can just imagine some listeners going, you know, I don't I don't like conflict. I don't know, you know, it's uncomfortable for me. How do I use it for constructive good? Well, it's going to release all this energy, and you will you will know what people think. There's a lot of information that comes out of conflict. You will understand differences. You understand different positions. You understand different standpoints. You understand different values. That's going to bring a wealth of a wealth of inputs that you can use in order to make better decisions. And on the other hand, if you um, have a negative view of conflict, you're not going to you're not you're going to receive all this information, but you're just not going to use it. And that's going to make up for poor decisions and less stability in the long run. In addition to you, to uh, in addition, make make the leaders uh, waste time and energy in meaningless conflicts. My experience working with some leaders, Elton, is that there the fear of conflict. I mean, firstly, I want to affirm that you're you're offering beliefs about conflict that can be very helpful to people and very helpful to leaders to embrace to look at conflict as this opportunity. It's an opportunity for information inputs, creative abrasion, really, which we've talked about, Gordon and I, before as well on the show. But a lot of people I speak with 
are afraid of conflict partly because of the emotional reactions that they experience themselves and or they may experience with other people. And I'm just wondering how you've made your peace with emotional reactions, either in yourself, some threat responses, and or with others. The whole emotions piece. Yeah. And in that, uh, I'm afraid that I might not be very helpful because I have a very particular career. I always work with creative industries. And I always run media companies most of the time. And one trait of media companies is it's an ongoing service that works 24-7. And people, the customer only realizes things that go wrong. They never appreciate what you're doing right. And one trait of those kind of organizations is that every Monday morning or every week, you sit with people and you tell them what they did wrong and they tell you what you did wrong, right? And these are, these are yeah, these are brutal meetings. It's awful, right? Then uh, with time you learn, right? Then it's not personal, right? But if you're doing a live broadcast, right? And you make a mistake, you must correct immediately, right? And you must correct immediately and permanently so that the same mistake is not made consistently, right? Then uh, in exercising that, I then learned that there's nothing wrong with people disagreeing with you as long as you do what you agreed upon. If the collective has an agreement on what should be done, then all you need to be worried is that this is ultimately exercised and done. That came with my training. Really, and if you stay, if you walk in a broadcasting company on on a Monday morning, it's an insane environment because people are <laughs> focusing on everything that went wrong in the last seven days, right? And you're incentivized to say it openly. And also, the other thing that you should know is um, in the operations for a media company, it's very hard to hide things. Very hard. Very hard reason is that everything recorded you can see on television you can see on the screen and so on then you learn that hiding problems is really not not a good process and because you have such transparent uh, transparent uh, communication you end up doing a much better creative work right and the other trait also in this kind of organizations is um, they have, you have creative people, you have artists, you have um, directors, writers, and things like that. But you also have engineers, right? You have truck drivers, camera people, cablemen, right? Then that makes for a very diverse uh, environment. And ultimately, by exercising the critique and by exercising transparent communication, you end up improving the results that you have. And you end up learning that you might be a creative person, but you need to get along with the engineer and vice versa. Okay, so I'm catching a couple things. I just want to try to express them as potential teaching points or learning points for me anyway. Elton, one of the things I'm hearing is that because of the industry that you found yourself in in a lot of your career, um, you didn't call it this, but would you think this is in the ballpark to say it was like a feedback culture? Yeah. Okay, so there's that yeah. piece. There was a feedback culture and you couldn't hide from it. It kind of was part of the game, yeah? That's correct. 
Okay, and through that, I hear some self-talk around realizing it wasn't personal. So there's something in you that has been able to separate your own ego, as it were, from making the product better. Um, Sometimes I think of feedback as I have spinach in my teeth and I appreciate somebody telling me or else I'm going to continue with and maybe in a media context that's a re- context that's a really good one I wouldn't want to go on camera with spinach on my teeth if you haven't told me yeah it is the, the understanding that if your colleague is not performing well you're not performing well either right because again going back to media companies whatever media whatever creative work that it does if it's producing a movie right ultimately what people will remember and see is the edited version of it. The edited version of it is hundreds of people, each contributing a little bit to make sure that a vision that's normally offered mainly by the director based on a script is actually fulfilled. Right? But when you watch a movie, you really don't know. Right? You really don't have any idea what went behind it. Then ultimately, a movie is is producing movie is an exercise of coordinated diversity. It's nothing more than that. And if you can't do it, then it will show. And you show for everyone. Then it's the same as an orchestra, right? In an orchestra, uh, you can uh, can be a great trumpet player. One can do that. But when you listen to an orchestra, you listen to the orchestra, not to the trumpet player. And that's what that's what a business is actually. It's an ecosystem, it's an orchestra. You've been talking about how there are benefits of conflict. Differences, diversity, more information, you can make better decisions. And you also spoke about your own relationship to conflict and how that's something that you've always been somewhat comfortable with and you've actually developed as well. But I want, I want to ask you about, say you're a senior executive and you have two directors and they're in a conflict over something and you can see the value potential in that conflict, but they're unable to manage their emotional responses or they're unable to engage in it very well. What do you do? In my view, in my view you manage through practice. Right? And the reason is, yeah, the, the difference between a mediation, the difference between mediation and conflict resolution skills at the board level, say, right, is that in mediation, you're a mediator, you're a third party that comes in and out of it, of whatever, um, whatever the situation is, right? Whatever the circumstances are, you come in, you come out. You go home, you forget all about it, go on your merry life. In an organization, the luxury is not afforded afforded to you. You uh, are there. You're part of it, and you can't come in and out. You're there for good, right? Then I'm a believer that practice is the way to go. And if people, if two directors are in conflict, right, you must create uh, conditions so that they can talk it through, and you must be prepared to fail at the beginning. Right. You must be prepared to, so that people can release all their emotions and ultimately focus that in a more constructive way. But I think it's part of the process. I don't think um, repressing 
those emotions or uh, not dealing with them or uh, trying to deal with them in one exclusive sessions or, or are helpful ways of doing it. But I do think that with proper coaching, with proper environment, people will eventually uh, learn to, to listen to each other. And listening to each other has a, has a lot to do with training, but it also has a lot to do with trust. Right? So we can tolerate many things. We cannot tolerate things we don't understand. Right? If we don't understand the logic, we don't make sacrifices because we don't know why we're sacrificing for. Right? Take the COVID. One of the issues that we have with COVID is we don't know when it ends, and we don't. We have very uh, little understanding of what is that that we're achieving with all the sacrifice that we, that we do because it's very hard to connect what we do individually to what we're achieving as, as a society because it's very broad then part of our, uh, our uh, restlessness in that process comes from those uh, origins in a different setting in a, in a board of directors or in a company if you have two people in conflict they need to learn how to figure that out and they need time and they need support and they need um, proper coaching but you can't really rush it and you can't and I'm not a great believer in very formal processes for that because it needs to be a fluid relationship so that, I just want to jump in here so time support yeah. coaching right are things you've said you've also said that the first time you help them get together or they get together they might get quite emotional and you think that's part of it they have to kind of get that their expressions out of how they're feeling about things how they're yeah. thinking about things and then and then it will get it will tend to get with that support and coaching it'll tend to get more yeah. productive because fundamentally if they um, understand ultimately what the other por person is trying to convey Right? or if at least they understand how they feel they have information that they can process and ultimately because they they need to be working together then ultimately they end up uh, getting along at, at, the be at best or at least exchanging information and understanding that this uh, that relationship can be based on a more professional basis but I think it's unavoidable I don't think it's bad, and and most of this again, it's it's my background. Most of it is uh, I've been part of those very brutal discussions, and ultimately after the fourth, fifth week, you understand it's not with me, right? And you start focusing on the problem, and once you start focusing on the problem, uh, the the emotional reaction to criticism reduces. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome principle in and of itself, focusing on the problem and not on the person. I want to add to that, Elton, kind of a fundamental question, which is what do you think is the responsibility of a leader towards conflict, you know, within their body organization? Okay. In chemical terms, a leader is a catalyzer, right? You want a given reaction? And the catalyzer is, by definition, the substance needs to be present, without which that reaction will not happen. That's that's your role, right? Your role is to be the catalyzer. Now, 
if the reaction that, it, that you're supposed to get is not happening, then you need to change your chemical mix there so that it may happen. But you need to catalyze positive behavior. Right? Then not acknowledging conflict, it's a bad idea. Because the conflict will be there. You're just moving it from the boardroom to the water cooler. It's a bad idea. You know, if people don't say to you what you don't like, all it means really is they're going to tell you when you're not, you're not listening. And you're going to tell other people. Right? Then isn't it much better that they just tell you? Right? Besides, uh, ultimately, if you're, if you're the CEO of a company, right, you do have the power of replacing people. And ultimately, you're, you shouldn't, shouldn't be insecure about people disagreeing with you because you have the power to remove it. You should be worried about reasons why they're disagreeing with you. Because there might be something for you to learn about it. But you're not being threatened. It's not, there's no, your power, your position, your salary, whatever, it's not being threatened. If anything, it's being helped. So again, you're offering these key ways of looking at conflict as something that can that can help transcend and it's not to be threatened. I'm, I'm also thinking, Elton, about leaders who might judge their followers as being immature or it's not really my problem. They've got the conflict. They should work it out. And I wondered what your response would be to that. Disney has a movie called Bugs. Right. Then there's a grasshopper. Yeah, Jerry Marnes is the grasshopper, right? <laughs> and one of his assistants comes to him and says, and says something like, uh, "It's not my fault, or it's not my problem." Then, then the grasshopper tells him, "Rule number one of leader, leadership: everything is your problem." <laughs> Because it comes with the responsibility. You can say that, that's fine. It's just gonna, not gonna work, right? Everything is your problem, you know? But not everything is your fault, but everything is your problem. Everything is your responsibility. It might not be your fault. I love it, Elton. I love the reference. I'll have to look it up. I haven't seen the movie Bugs. Bugs, it's <laughs> Jeremy Irons. Great, great performance. Yeah, yeah. Makes me realize you were the VP of uh, Disney, right? <laughs> Disney yeah. TV. So I'm like, okay, might have been under your time. <laughs> okay, that's fabulous. Okay, I'm getting close, Gord. How about you in terms of um, getting to our almost last, our almost last question? There's something that you have, uh, <clears throat> have you've sidled up to, Elton, but not quite dove into and responded, and that is. As you move up in an organization, I think you've, you may have mentioned to us before that the increase in authority isolates you from others and you start losing access to important information. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that through experience or example in some way that comes to mind. Yeah, it does. Uh, mostly because you, you get a better car, you then put a secretary at your door, uh, you. Uh, don't you fly first class, you have a driver when you come to, the, to a country you're, you're going, and what it does to you, it tends to do with it, is that you lose touch with, 
with your customers, with your business, with society in general, with your employees, and on and on. Right? And, and that affects your judgment. Right? And if you don't know how normal people live, you probably don't know how to estimate their consumption habits. You, you, you can't really judge um, a market research and strategy. And if you're selling, uh, in my case, I used to sell subscriptions one, in one of my positions, right? Pay-per-view subscriptions. Then suppose a pay-per-view for soccer in Brazil costs $50 a month. If you don't know how much $50 a month is worth for a normal person, then you can't really uh, judge if you're pricing that correctly. I guess I mentioned to you, when uh, in one of my postings, I used to go to Argentina a lot. I lived in Miami and I used to go to Argentina every uh, two or three weeks. Then I watched the, the price of a cup of coffee going from being the same as in Miami to be seven to eight times more expensive than in Miami, right? Then if you watch that one indication, right, you know there's something wrong there. You know there's an economic crisis coming because that's out of line. Then if you're a bit curious, you, you will go to a supermarket and see how much rice costs, eggs, and general commodities so that you have a few of it. And when you go back to headquarters, you need to make decisions that are very practical decisions. They have impact in people's lives, right? And those are pricing decisions, packaging decisions, and on and on. Right? If you uh, have an understanding on on the relative value, uh, relative prices, and if you have an understanding that there's something wrong there, you might change your perspective, and that might influence your entire judgment on the strategies and profitability and everything else, which then leads you to make different decisions that ultimately will uh, hopefully uh, improve the performance, right? But the, the biggest danger when you go up and you have power is to be isolated, right? The same goes with your, uh, with your communication with your subordinates. As you go up, you have less access or you become more, more inaccessible. Same goes with uh, the people who know what's going on in the organization, or, the, or what I call the Julia, the individual people, right? People who, who uh, make the least amount of money know more. They are an amazing wealth of uh, information on what that is, right? And, and how, how do you access that, Elton? What, what are the ways of accessing that wealth of information at the Lower you don't. Of the you don't hide behind. You don't hide hide behind the walls. You just talk to people. If you travel, you walk on streets. You eat when where normal people eat. You try to eat what they eat. You talk to every level of the organization, and then you gain insights of what's going on. And it, it, it is so useful to do that. It's so useful to have that perspective. That will make you. Uh, that will. That make you be able to uh, put faces in numbers. Right. One of the problems that you have in in running businesses is that the paper accepts anything. Then you. Uh, that you. I analyzed hundreds of business plans. All of them were profitable. Right. Because no one plans a business not to be profitable. 
then the question that you have as a business leader is how much money you're going to invest in each project and are the, is the risk worth the investment? If you don't develop sensibility, sensitivity to the issues that really matter to your customers, to your employees, you don't know if your company has the capability to execute that, nor if your business plan is, is uh, more likely to succeed or not. All you know is that you, you, you're seeing a financial model that tests the consistency between different variables in a mathematical way. But that's not enough to make a decision. Right? The other is there is this concept of rational decisions, right? And it's a funny concept because there's no such a thing as a rational decision. A decision is by definition subjective. Right? You need to find other adjectives. There's, it's not rational. You have preferences. You're just you're just exercising that by using a heuristics that makes sense and by understanding the problem the best you can. And in that, you use tools that will help you to do that. You help you to simulate financial aspects of what you think. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, saying yes or no, there will always be uh, a very a, a gigantic subjective component to it. You know, that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're very welcome. So I'm glad we got that question in because I know uh, it was important. Gordon, we talked about this off air as well, but it was important for you to make sure we spoke a bit about power and the, the you know what the, some negative consequence could be. So thank you so much, Elton. We've really only got one more question for you. We're so happy you've blessed us with your time and your input and your wisdom. And it really just is, you know, is there any other outstanding advice that you might have for leaders when it comes with con to conflict? No. no, I'm hoping that people are not bored to death for <laughs> listening, that, listening to it. But it's really uh, a bunch of common sense, sense things that we need to exercise. And because they're common sense, they're very hard to exercise. Because exercising common sense implies that uh, one needs to be analyzing his or her own um, ideas and actions on an ongoing basis. And it needs to be permeable to other people's inputs and other people's opinion, which is most times uh, a very painful exercise. And we, being humans, we tend to be to be accommodated, not and and don't exercise that level of scrutiny when it comes to ourselves. But that's what makes you uh, improve. And I'll leave you with that conundrum. Feedback again, right? I think you're pointing to the importance of feedback inputs for ourselves as human beings yeah. too, to grow. But I yeah, but I think we should not. We should always understand that feedback will be painful most times. Yep. At least. Yep. I've experienced that. And you need to. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta. You gotta have a level of tolerance to pain. Otherwise, you can't improve. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Elton is the relationship between being open for feedback, which we do know can be painful, and our sense of resiliency. Yeah, I spend a lot of time with mixed martial artists in these days uh, for professional reasons. And this morning, actually, one of them was telling me that he is a, he is a very famous uh, jiu-jitsu fighter 
right? Or mixed martial arts artist, but that came from jiu-jitsu. And he's saying exactly that. Say, what jiu-jitsu taught me is to live uh, not being comfortable. You should get used to it, because I know that if I get used to it, that will lead me to improve. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, then Perhaps that's a principle of resiliency, too, is looking yeah, at that's the word that he, he said that's the exact word that he used he said it builds my it built my resilience right because then, then of course he's a mixed martial artist saying well when i feel pain right rather than focusing on the pain i focus on what i'm doing right or wrong and how to get out of that situation so that i may win my fights mm-hmm. mm. fantastic so it's like using pain to foster alertness or awareness and learning it's understanding learning. it's now it's it's understanding that learning is painful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right it is it is like that we all like um, I, I'd say we all like knowing right and but learning is difficult <laughs> and unfortunately to know what's in a book you need to read the book wouldn't it be nice if you could just take a pill yeah. Right. But you can't. No. Well, you can. Right? You need to go through page by page, word by word, letter by letter, go through from cover to cover, and then you know. Yeah. Right? But if you could take a, pi- a pill and just absorb everything that's in there, it would be nicer. I know. It's just impossible. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Well, you must exercise that resilience and you must tolerate that pain so that you improve, you, you get out of your shell, you get out of your comfort zone. And once you're there, one day you wake up and say, I'm better. Right? And then you go exercising more tolerance for pain and growing again. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful metaphor and perhaps a lovely way to put around on our conversation because we started by talking about COVID and the times that we are in and perhaps a way of reconstructing these times is looking at it exactly in the way that you just just described, Elton. Perhaps there is that, because it's certainly painful for so many of us. Yeah. So many aspects of this time is painful for so many of us that perhaps there is that stretch that gives us a different place to be. Yeah. Mm. Well, I agree. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Elton. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure. If you love this episode of On Conflict, then help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. And you can spread these big ideas too by sharing on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you show up online. Want to know more about us? Check out our website, onconflictpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Now, go make the world a better place.